Welcome to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Carlos interviews Dr. Olivia Petty about neuroscience, public health, and customer experiences. Welcome everyone to the Customer Experience Management Podcast. Uh, today I have a guest that has already been here in the podcast before. Uh, her name is Olivia Petit. Uh, you can know more about her in the link that I will post uh, in the description of the, this podcast. And also you can listen to the podcast that we uh, recorded on digital sensory marketing with her. But what you need to know about her in a nutshell is that she is a professor, uh, an, as an associate professor in Catch Business School in France, and she's working uh, in a bunch of topics uh, related to uh, sensory marketing, digitals and multi-sensory marketing, and also uh, consumer neuroscience. And that is the topic of today. Today we're going to be talking about consumer neuroscience in the context of public health, how to design experiences for the public based on consumer neuroscience, that is the understanding of brain processes associated with consumption. Uh, and Olivia is going to tell us more about this uh, today. So Olivia, welcome to the podcast. It is very nice to, to have you here again. Thank you, Carlos. I'm so I, yeah, so I think we can start directly, you know, because I mean, mm. um, we, we have a bunch of things to talk about today. And, and the first question that I want to ask you is, why measuring brain activity to understand customer experiences? By the way, for those of you who haven't listened to Olivia's podcast, she has already answered what experiences are for her. But we're going to start now. Why measuring brain activity to understand consumer experiences? It's a very important question. It's uh, also related about how we measure uh, consumer behavior and uh, in general in marketing. Uh, generally, we ask questions to uh, customers uh, with questionnaires, for example, for quantitative research. And what we know actually from these questionnaires, when we measure attitude, intention, they are not so good predictors of uh, consumer behavior. And why? That's a okay, question too. Um, it's, we have many reasons why they are not good predictors of uh, behavior. The first one is maybe for... Uh, social desirability. I, uh, I would like to imagine what are your purpose uh, of your experience, try to find the good answers you expect and maybe adapt my answers based on it. Maybe I don't want to give you the real reason of my behavior. I, will on, I don't want to tell you that I'm uh, on diet and that's the reason I decided to buy uh, this uh, very fresh salad um, and uh, I prefer this option compared to the burger, for example. And uh, but there are also maybe more deep reasons that also related to about how brain process information. Actually, we don't have access to all the unconscious and automatic processes that behind our decision. We are not able completely to understand the illusion that our brain creates for us. Uh, let me give you an example about, I don't know, a visual illusion. Uh, what is a visual illusion? I, I really like one is, uh, maybe you know this one, it's about a check, uh, checkboard uh, when you have um, a cylinder creating a shadow on, a, on, mm. the, um, on the checkboard and you have two square, one with the letter A and one with the letter B. And you have the feeling, the perception that uh, one square is white, right, and the other one is black. 
but actually they have exactly the same color. And this is our brain based on our previous experiences with a checkerboard. Our brain knows what should be the color. And based on the information our brain gets from this visual illusion, it changed the reality for us. And we don't have any control of it. We can, I can explain you the illusion, you will still perceive the colors as different. That means we have many things that our brain process automatically without we are not conscious and that will affect the way we make decisions. And that's the reason I was interested about neuroscience, trying to understand the process. I mean, try to understand better, not completely, but how we make decisions and what happens in your brain when we make decisions and how that can change um, behavior. Uh, let me give you some maybe some examples of situations in which uh, brain uh, activities help to better understand the uh, the decision of consumers. I um, think that that would be great. But before we move to to those examples, okay. so I have one question, which is: uh, Would it be correct to paraphrase what you just said as, uh, you know, through consumer neuroscience, you can better understand? Uh, uh, kind of like the automatic, perhaps more implicit processes that are underlying uh, consumers' experiences. And at the same time, have sort of like a, a brain correlate in a way that helps you kind of like predict perhaps better what's actually going to happen in the world. It's, um, I mean, it's um, difficult to say. I mean, it depends on what you say about prediction. Um, uh, what we call prediction. I won't say, if, uh, but it's something maybe we we discuss later. We can uh, associate specific behavior with specific brain activities. I won't say that, but you have some research showing that, for example, I would give you an example of a study about um, uh, solar cream. Uh, in this study, they are um, present uh, an advertising messages for um, solar cream to the participants when uh, scanning the brain. Uh, um, during the experience, and they also measure the attitude towards the solar cream, okay? And two weeks after, they ask people to come back in the lab and measure the amount of uh, solar cream they used. Mm -hmm. And they found that actually the correlation between the attitude and the use of the solar cream was not significant mm -hmm. at all. But they found some um, activity, um, activity in specific brain areas associated with decision making that was uh, significantly correlated. And actually, uh, the brain activity was a better predictor of the behavior than the attitude. But that does not mean that based on the brain activity, you can predict the behavior because it was based on the data you collected, just based on the activity before, you are not able to say, okay, they will use uh, the cream or not, but a posteriori you are able to make this kind of prediction and showing that actually attitude is not a very good predictor of, in some cases, of uh, the behavior of uh, customers. Okay, but this is, is why we should understand prediction. Yeah, you're, you're you're right. It depends on how you define prediction, and I guess one of the the key the key challenges, uh, I guess not not only for neuroscience but for many behavioral sciences and cognitive sciences and so on, is is how you can actually use a measure that allows you to kind of like anticipate what is going to happen, mm. right? Because mm. you can do it retrospectively by looking at the data, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that model will replicate or apply mm. 
with a 100% confidence uh, in the future. But anyway, uh, thank you for that clarification, Olivia. What, what are the examples that you are going to give us? Um, um, I found very effective uh, using uh, neuroimaginacy in different cases. Uh, not necessarily, as I said, for uh, real prediction, but for example, as I said, to understand uh, a difference between the behavior and what people say and what happened in their mind and trying to explain this difference based on brain activity. Let me give you an example. Um, in, um, in a study uh, conducting uh, public health, uh, they proposed to participants, uh, the participants were exposed to uh, advertising, I mean, advertising messages uh, for uh, cigarettes. I mean, we know the, this uh, health prevention messages you have on a package of cigarettes that can be very uh, disturbing uh, mm -hmm. and can uh, make you very bad. And, um, and this study measures the brain activity of, of, uh, of smokers when they were exposed to this message. And after ask them about uh, what um, they talk about these messages. And what was very interesting in this study, they found when these customers said, oh, I was completely scared about this message, I was completely bad and I feel I have to modify my behavior. Uh, actually, when we analyze the brain activity, we found the opposite. Uh, this participant had more activity in brain areas associated with reward. Hmm. Uh, suggesting that actually when you have this um, message very familiar message like uh, smoking kill or something like that. Now it's associated with the package of cigarettes because there are so many times repeated on the package, but now you associate this message with cigarettes that creates a signal of reward. Hmm. And the way of justifying, maybe they did, they know why they have this sensation. Maybe they had a specific increase of emotion when they saw these messages, but we are not able to understand why and try to find a justification about the reaction and try to say, okay, this is because I was very scared. Or maybe, uh, and it's interesting to see the difference between what people say and what happened in the brain to try to find new explanation. You don't have all the answers based on the brain activities, but because they provide new information, you have maybe new questions. Hmm. And um, and that's the first example. Maybe I can give you an, another example. It's about making distinction between different processes. Um, we are, I don't know if you also talk consumer behavior, but we are often discussing about attention and memorization. Hmm. And sometimes we can see that it's not because you pay attention to a content that you will memorize the information. And you, um, and it's around, again, in this field of public health, you have a very famous study uh, in which they compare um, messages with different level of emotion, with very high emotion, very negative emotion for, uh, again, for, uh, um, for cigarettes, uh, when you see people with uh, very sick or uh, some organs or other things like that, that can be very, and, over, um, over messages in which it was just, uh, for example, it's not good uh, for you, you will have yellow teeth or something like that, that create lower emotion. And they found that may, when you expose people to high emotional messages, 
there are more activity in brain areas associated with attention. <laughs> but it was when you had messages showing low emotional messages, but you have more activities in memorization or in as areas associated with memorization. Because sometimes when it's too uh, it's too emotional, maybe okay, that will attract your attention, but we try to remove the information because you are not able to you don't feel the self-efficacy, your ability mm. to proceed the message, and you won't memorize the information for this reason. And we completely see that in uh, by using uh, neuroimaging research. We are able to see whether its attention is connected or not with memorization. There is something that I really like about what you're saying, Olivia, and is that, you know, contrary to what happens sometimes in some uh, applied settings, but also even in some in some uh, re, uh, uh, academic settings, you're talking about consumer neuroscience, but you're focusing about processes, brain brain slash psychological processes that we can measure through brain or brain science techniques, I guess. You're not talking about, or you're not, not not starting from the technology itself, from, you know, what kind of like uh, uh, tools we have there to measure brain activity, but you're saying, hey, look, we're looking at a specific process, and then we can use some of the tools of neuroscience to go to the brain and look that at a specific areas or networks and so on. Um, but maybe for for the sake of uh, telling our listeners, when you're talking about these examples, what sort of... Uh, uh, tools are you using or they are using to, to measure brain activity? It's a, it's a very important question. Maybe I had to start with that before explaining <laughs> my, uh, the research. It's like in general, we have two kinds of tools to, uh, to have access to the brain. We have uh, uh, tools that we call peripheral tools that just measure uh, signal not directly connected to the brain activities, like for example, the eye tracker, uh, the, uh, the measure of skin conductance, electrodermal uh, activity, or herbic, this kind of thing that just give you a, an indirect indicator of what happened in the brain. And after we have tools like uh, functional magnetic resonance imagery, or EEG, that measure more directly, but we can still uh, <laughs> define what is direct measure of the brain activity, because, for example, in the case of uh, fMRI uh, functional resonance uh, imaging research. It's about the modification of uh, properties of blood that are oxygenated or not, that change the magnetic properties and we mm. create an activity. It's not so. It's because you have a change in blood that creates a kind of signal that maybe this area is more engaged in the process that is still an interpretation, even if it's more close to the brain. Uh, but it's more related to the direct brain activities. And what is interesting is uh, now, uh, because I mean, it's, I, won't, I wouldn't say that uh, 10 years ago, but now we have many research conducted in neuroimagery uh, that can create meta-analysis of, um, of, um, of research showing some connection between brain areas and and maybe connectivity between brain areas, that is something also new and nice, I think, mm -hmm. identifies uh, some, um, uh, some uh, brain processes, uh, what we call brain processes. I'm not sure about uh, the relevance of this word, but like attention, memorization, evaluation, decision. And uh, we are now 
able to better interpret what happened in the brain of people when they're exposed to specific stimuli. But something is important to say, it's uh, something that is a key issue in, um, in neuroscience. It's a reverse uh, inference issue. It's like normally when you analyze the brain activity, you can see just because um, uh, you have a specific task, this brain processes is engaged and expect some brain activation. But actually what we do in marketing and generally in uh, psychological and social science, when we are doing neuro neuroscience, we are doing the opposite. We observe a brain activity and we suppose that a behavior is engaged based or process is engaged based on this activity. And it's difficult and it's an interpretation. It's not completely true because a brain activity can be associated with different kinds of, uh, of behavior. Mm -hmm. And we have to pay attention about the interpretation of the brain activity for this reason. Yeah, and I think that in a way also highlights the, the, the sort of like key need for not only like the, the tools for neuroscience, but also having present like very clearly processes, as you said, you know, attention, memory, uh, emotion and so on. And at the same time, kind of like clear experimental paradigms or experimental designs that actually put you in a situation where the neural correlate is going to make sense, right? It's going to make sense as a function of a given behavior or a parameter that you're going through. Uh, this is this is super interesting, Olivia. But then let's 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 talk about something. You know, like what are the advantages and disadvantages of using uh, neuroscience in, uh, to understand consumers? Let's say relative to other methods. I mean, I guess the the, the main the main one that I can think of is that many companies are 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 discouraged of using uh, brain imaging because of the costs associated with you know the running an fMRI study is relatively expensive, right? But but I don't know what 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 do you have in mind about advantages and disadvantages? Yeah, uh, concern is a disadvantage as you start with the cost is one of the key disadvantages of this technology, and that's the reason uh, for me you need to have a, a specific question that you can't answer with another tool. Um, and in many cases, you can answer your question with uh, without measuring the, the brain activity. Uh, for me, it's also a question of. Um, uh, ecological uh, environment. Uh, you should understand that when you are uh, in a refinery, uh, it's like to be in a bed uh, with uh, a scan, with noise, with just a screen and uh, uh, a mirror uh, in front of your eyes. It's not a very good condition to uh, make decision. You are not in a very close to the way you are doing decision uh, for real, especially because for being able to make statistics about the brain activity, we need to repeat the same conditions uh, 100 times. I mean, I will show you the same product 100 times and you will have to make exactly the same decision concerning this product. And I'm not sure that after uh, 20 minutes uh, telling me that you would like to buy this product, you really want again to buy this product. Um, that's a key issue of uh, using this technology. And for me, it's all about having specific questions when you have uh, this technology and answering or, or also considering the design that you need to have for this kind of research. That, that means you don't, you can't have exactly the same question than you would like to have by using uh, other tools. But if you have exactly the same question, you, why using this tool, I, I would say. Um, for me, the, the uh, 
the interest of, of this technology is when you would like to discriminate between different processes. And for me, it's, it's a key point of this technology. To, as I said, for example, with the example of, um, of the messages for cigarettes, do you want to see whether the message creates attention or memorization? It's a, for me, it's something very interesting to, to see. Uh, it's about discriminate between different customers, for example. You can have a decision that is similar for different consumers, but maybe linked to different kind of processes because they had, and by improving or understanding about these processes, we are more able to understand maybe why different customers make a similar or different decisions. Uh, that's a point on which I also worked on my side, and I think this technology was very relevant for um, for this point. It's interesting for academics in general, I think, for um, maybe sometimes to give support uh, to specific uh, theories or not. Uh, I would like to give you an example about, uh, it's a study that was some years ago, but I found very interesting about brain personality. Okay. Uh, you have this concept of brain personality that a brain can have personality similar as people, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, we uh, try to create personality for brains for this reason. And in this uh, in this research, um, they expose uh, the participant to um, to words related to um, an of people, okay, or brands associated with some personality traits, and analyze the brain activity during these different conditions. And found that actually the brain activity of people during the exposure of uh, of brain with personality traits was close to the activity of uh, objects and not of people. Hmm. And that means the brain is more close to our brain in terms of uh, what activity we have uh, of the activity we have for an object and for someone. And that means maybe it's not to say that brain personality doesn't make sense but it should not be uh, related to the personality of someone. That is, that is interesting. Um, and I think it's, you, you have quite some, some points there about the, the advantages and disadvantages. It really kind of like possibly clarify certain things, you know, that we might not be able to study otherwise. And therefore, that's why you highlight the idea of we need to ask the right questions, right? And the right questions in, this, in the context of neuroscience as well. Because otherwise you would just use other methods. Uh, but at the same time, of course, there are limitations, right? Um, and I think we, we will not discuss <clears throat> all the limitations in, in the podcast, but I want to touch on one specific one before we enter to talk more about uh, public policy and some of the studies that you have been involved in. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, like uh, some people have been criticizing, uh, perhaps as with other methods and other traditional studies that, um, brain studies may have <clears throat> certain limitations in predicting behavior, such as their the sample sizes that they use, you know, uh, maybe they don't use like a lot of people, uh, or maybe sometimes what you said that they are um, uh, taking people outside of their context. So they're really like studying them in, in a laboratory or where things actually happen. So I don't know, what, what is your take on this? So what, how, what, what is actually the level of, how, how much can we inform things that happen in people in the marketplace right um, based on consumer neuroscience research it's a, it's an important question 
I have different things to say about it. Uh, first, again, it's about your level of interpretation and the, your level of decision you make based on it. I, I won't say, for example, uh, and it was uh, something that was indicated in this study that presented uh, um, the fact that we can't make prediction, but there are another definition about prediction in this paper, I think. But for example, you can't use brain activity to define uh, tr personality traits. You can't say, for example, because you have this brain activity, or maybe sometime also now it's something that is also um, making some studies, you have a greater volume of gray matter mm -hmm. in this specific area. That will mean that you won't be able to control yourself or you won't be able to, you will be someone that is depressed or you will be uh, more impulsive consumers. We have to pay attention about making this kind of direct correlation between I have a better activity in this area, I have a greater volume of gray matter in this area, that means I will necessarily have this kind of behavior. It's not this kind of prediction we can do based on, on this, uh, on this uh, research. But we just say is maybe because you have some um, aspects, some characteristics, maybe you will be more likely to have mm. specific behavior. I mean, it's that's a level. And it's more about maybe uh, paying attention about, um, um, to, and it's, for example, for in health prevention, I think it's very important to check this kind of research to say, okay, we see that this, kind of stimulation, this kind of, um, of strategy or intervention or yeah, exactly affects the way you process the information and it can change your behavior. I mean, after it depends also about how you measure the behavior. Again, as I said, it's not a very ecological way of doing uh, uh, this kind of measure, but it means you have at least to pay attention to uh, and to show that affects actually the real be, um, the process of your customers and the way they process information. And as I said at the beginning of my presentation, we are not conscious about how brain, and we can't control how brain process information. If you see that the stimul, uh, stimulus change the way we process information, maybe in a not good way, maybe reducing your self-control, for example, especially for young generation, it may be something we should say to public policy. And you have to pay attention to this aspect because they change the way the teenager processes the information and that may affect their behavior. That is, a, that is quite interesting. I, I would like to highlight an idea that you are mentioning and is this what has been called a loca lo locationalist view of uh, uh, you know, brain research, which is this idea that, you know, People tend to think in a sometimes uh, a reductionistic way such that uh, an area of the brain is active and therefore there is a behavior related or a process related. But what we know from the brain now is that it's actually a very complex uh, and dynamic uh, organ that, uh, you know, even when one area doesn't function, sometimes the, the, the brain is plastic enough to kind of like adapt and be able to cover some of the functions that might have been attached to a specific area. So it is clear that uh, having this idea of area relates to a specific behavior, a specific process is not necessarily uh, uh, the best way, but 
it can give us some insight, but not necessarily tells us the whole story of what is happening with the brain at, a, at any given moment. So um, thank you for that, that clarification, Olivia. And now I want to, to, to move forward and, and dive into some of the topics that you have been working on, uh, which kind of like are the, the core of, of the podcast today. Is that you have been interested in understanding how consumer neuroscience research can be used to understand eating uh, experience and behaviors and how we can actually use this research to inform public health uh, in general, right? So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? What have you done? What can be done? And where can we take this? Um, uh, I, I think it's very relevant for public health to use this kind of technologies because you can pr uh, present to, um, I mean, there are also an effect uh, that I don't would like to say that's the best way of convincing people, but generally they consider that neuroscience and uh, analyzing the brain activity it's more scientific. And when you discuss with public um, policy maker, uh, policy maker, sorry, you are able to convince them more easily with this kind of things. I won't say that's a good reason, but I, I saw that they consider that it's scientific and they, uh, they trust you based on this data. And I won't, and I really won't say that's uh, the best reason, but it's, uh, it's something it's I, a reason. <laughs> I mean, it's persuasive, I guess. Yes, it's very persuasive, but it's, as I said, it's not, as it's not, but maybe the reason is because it's not con connected to the questionnaire and maybe, as I said, the desirability, the social desirability, or other things that can change the, the answer of customers. And it's more connected to what happened in their brain and they can't control. But also uh, bring some ethical, ethical question, but it's still something that, looks more believable maybe for people because it's not something that is controlled by the by the customer and um, but it's maybe about the information and maybe the most important thing is about the information you you get um, it's very difficult uh, also with other uh, tools to evaluate uh, the processes uh, for example we have um, we are able to better distinct some emotions, some processes. For example, making the distinction between attention and memorization can be very difficult. And it's important to say that when you are doing this kind of, uh, um, maybe presenting this kind of messages, okay, you will go to the public policy, uh, poli the policy sorry, and telling them this message disturbs your customers. They, uh, they, okay, they pay attention, but they don't remind the message. They are able to remind maybe to, to, to you can make the test with your, uh, with your student asking them, do you, uh, I, um, are you smoking? Are you a smoker? And after asking them, what is the picture on your package of cigarettes? And they won't be able in general to answer to this question because they are trying to not pay attention to the message. Okay. And if you don't pay, they, are they are because they are very choking. That means if you try to remove the information, you won't remind the message, but normally should help you to modify your behavior. Generally, it's like, okay, if you stop to smoke, you are trying to help you to stop to smoke, but if it's, you don't feel able 
to completely change your behavior. If you have message that is too strong and too difficult to manage, you will try to remove the information. And it's we can show it to the policymaker um, the, the telling, okay, maybe you have to change the way you present the messages because as you can see, these messages are not proceed. That is that 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 is, that is quite interesting, and it also highlights, you know, this idea relating like this brain uh, studies with behavioral data is also quite important, right? Because you can see how the processing of the message might be or not happening, and how does that connect with maybe a strategy that the consumer develop in just avoiding looking at it, you know? <laughs> uh, so I don't know. This this is super interesting, Olivia. There is a study of you uh, that we have been discussing, uh, and and I think it's quite relevant also now that you know we see food images all over the place, people taking pictures on Instagram, you know, uh, lots of communications about food, and also lots of editing about food, you know, which it's kind of like something that might be uh, influencing the way in which we relate to food as well. And you you conducted a study in which you were interested uh, in seeing how the way in which you portrayed foods uh, in in uh, in particular healthy and unhealthy foods uh, influences uh, the way in which people actually relate to those foods. So can, can you tell us a little about that that specific study? Um, yes, in, in this study, we were interested to see about how the way we present food to uh, customer can change the way we proceed the information. Uh, when you think about Instagram, uh, you have this phenomenon uh, of food porn, for example, when you see very appetizing picture, and we try to understand why this uh, picture are so appetizing for customers. And we were thinking that because they were they are very immersive. You generally see uh, videos of someone from a first person perspective, and that is very close to the way we experience the world in general. I mean, we see from a first perspective, we experience the world from a first perspective. And we were thinking that maybe because we have this first person perspective in these uh, videos on, on Instagram, we are more likely to have gustatory inference for this product, for this reason, because they are close to the way um, we experience food in general. And, and gustatory inference are as the inferences that people make about the taste and the exactly. experience of eating the food, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And in this study, we compare the presentation of, um, of, of food in videos where you saw someone grasping food from a first-person perspective and from a third-person perspective, and we compare the brain activity uh, in these two conditions for, um, for healthy and unhealthy food. And what we found very interesting in your research is when you see unhealthy food from a first-person perspective compared to a third-person perspective, you have more activities in areas associated with gustation. You are more likely to imagine the taste of the hmm. product. And you have also more activity in areas associated with grasping. You are more likely to imagine uh, grasping the food hmm. from this first-person perspective. And it was also correlated with the BMI of participants. Which and is the body mass index, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. I think that people with higher BMI had stronger effect and had more activity in the reward value area. But what was also interesting in your study is it didn't work for healthy food. That means 
when you see, observe healthy food from a first-person perspective, you don't have this positive effect on gustatory inference. And again, it's interesting for public health because it's telling to them that maybe you have to pay attention about how healthy food are presented to customers because they create very important inference and food craving for this product. But actually, the opposite, it doesn't work for healthy food. And Mm. You need to find other ways of promoting the product. And and people are, and also because the reason you would like to eat healthy and healthy food are not the same. When you're creating a first-person perspective, it's more experiential. And maybe you would like to imagine eating the smell, the taste, the texture of eating a burger. But maybe mm. for the salad, you are more, you would like more to imagine you with a nice body on a, and on the beach or something else. It's not about the experience of eating. And this may be the reason we didn't find this effect because it's like presenting a first-person perspective is engaging someone in hmm. the eating action. And maybe you don't want to be engaged for healthy food. Oh, and I think it's there, there's also like a more general message from, from this research that you have done, which is this idea that, uh, you know, the, depending on the kinds of food, you know, which could be healthier and healthy, uh, different kinds of presentations actually result in different sort of uh, associated mental processes and also behaviors. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, of course, public policy may capitalize on, in particular in countries, you know, where maybe there are some um, uh, uh, kind of like health effects of eating uh, unhealthy foods uh, or other food-related problems. So I think uh, in particular now, you know, that we we are immersed in so many environments where we see foods digitally and we see pictures of food before we eat which actually influence the way in which we end up eating then it becomes quite critical right mm. no Lydia, that is uh, fascinating um so broadly speaking from this example how does consumer neuroscience inform public policy from from your point of view i mean you have already mentioned a few a few points of how but uh, What's kind of like your general summary of that? Um, it's maybe I can give you a last example based on another study I, I conducted. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was maybe the study that was most relevant for public uh, policy, I think. Uh, because in this study, we ask uh, our um, participants to make decisions for, um, for food. We ask them to not eat for three hours to make sure that the decision they make during the experiments um, was close to what they really want because they had to eat the food at the end of the experiment. And um, we asked them to make decisions about food in three conditions, in a control condition without any um, indication. In another condition, we asked them to focus on the health benefits of eating fruits and vegetables. And in the last condition, we asked them to focus on the Uh, sensory aspect, the pleasure they will have to eat uh, these fruits and vegetables. And what was interesting in your study is we found that actually people with a higher BMR selected more uh, healthy uh, fruits and vegetables uh, to eat when they were in the sensory condition, when we asked them to focus on, on the sensory aspect. And we didn't find any uh, difference between people in the other condition. But what was very interesting also is what we found at the brain level for me. Because when, even if we, we didn't have any difference in terms of behavior, 
for the decision of eating fruits and vegetables in the health benefits condition. Mm-hmm. Um, we found that actually we have a decrease of activity in reward value area okay. uh, in this condition, suggesting that actually when you ask people on, or you focus people on the health benefits of eating fruits and vegetables, you decrease the value of this food for these people. And actually, when you when you think about the messages we have about uh, public poli- from public policy about fruits and vegetables, it's about it's good for your health. Mm. And who results like you decrease uh, the value related to these products when you say that to people with a high BMI. And that's for me a good information for public policy. And at the opposite, we found that um, in the condition where they were focused on the sensation. We first found that they selected more healthy food in this condition. And that um, actually, there are more activities in, took in brain areas first associated with rewards and then that increase the value, and also in self-control. And I think it's also an interesting information, again, based on interpretation. Uh, but what, for me, that say is, is not to say, actually, this will show that people with a higher BMR don't have lower capacity of self-control. It depends on the condition, how you present the information to them that maybe make more likely to engage self-control. And it's interesting to say that it's you they will not choose necessarily the salad compared to the burger because, oh, now it's amazing products. It's, it's, uh, it's, it tastes so good, but because I can imagine it also have some positive sensorial properties. Maybe I, I still prefer the burger, but I'm able to control myself and select the salad because I can also imagine eating something that can bring me some pleasure. And pleasure is necessary for me to eat. You can't eat without just nutrients for me. This is super interesting, Elia. While you were talking, I was thinking of, you know, what is kind of like common to to what we have been discussing now. And, and you know, like there is something quite interesting about this study about segmentation, you know, which is uh, kind of like one size fit all solutions are not necessarily something that, that, that work in terms of how people eat, you know, because there are differences in BMI, there are differences in, in our elements. So it, it, it occurred to me that perhaps uh, based on these and the other ex- examples that you have been given, uh, there are kind of like three major ways in which uh, these studies can help inform public health and policy uh, more broadly. Uh, the first one is uh, educate consumers, I guess, is one. You know, it's like know how things affect them in their environment so that they are more and more aware and can take the measurements. Another one is perhaps uh, plan interventions that are based on these, you know, like the neuroscience of eating and drinking, perhaps. And another one that is uh, slightly trickier, but I think it's still kind of like um, uh, important is regulate companies. But I'm not sure what is your take. So these are the kind of like three uh, main that I can derive from how consumer neuroscience can inform public health policy. Uh, is there anything else that you have in mind? I think for the last option is maybe also to help the company to change away the, uh, the uh, they communicate with customers. Um, it's also to show some ways, for example, in this way, you can say, okay, 
you can maybe better communicate on healthy food. And it's not necessarily something against the company. And it's, uh, it's sometimes, I think, as you said, it's also to alert public policy about uh, specific um, action from company. Um, I don't know if we have time to discuss about uh, my intervention in your European Commission or... Yeah, we, we will come to that in a moment. Okay, if you okay. want to finish your point, I'll, okay, I'll come okay. back to that in a, in a moment. Uh, I was not sure. <laughs> okay, uh, because uh, I would say in some cases it's important to say, okay, we should make action because the um, way that marketers uh, promote the products uh, have a bad impact on customers. And we should be able to say that when it's the case. And also, as you say, to help the customer to better understand um, the influence of brand on your on their behavior and what they can do also to change their behavior. But it's also a way to tell to company that maybe they can and they can also be engaged in more uh, sustainable ways of proposing or of products of sometimes they have the thing they can have the thing maybe it's uh, uh, creating impulsive behavior impulsive mm. uh, purchase decision it's maybe better than having something that is more connected to long-term benefit because it's it's true, it's, uh, you need more self-control, you need to be more engaged in, um, in, uh, in the action to be convinced, to follow behavior that are good for long-term. But if we explain to company how we can support this kind of process, we may help them to provide better ways of, uh, of um, providing products or experience to their customers. And I think, you know, we can probably spend a long time talking about what I'm going to say now, but uh, because we don't have unlimited time and, and I want to, to take most of your time now, uh, let's let's talk about briefly. But this brings to mind something and is that there is kind of like a double-edged sword here, which is this idea that, you know, these can inform companies, but not only companies, also, you know, states and regulators and basically different stakeholders, what things can actually affect positively consumers, right? but can also give them strategic information for maybe fulfill some of their aims that might not necessarily be good for the consumer, right? Mm -hmm. So in a way you are in this kind of like double-edged sword, which is not by no means specific to consumer neuroscience, but more broadly like research mm -hmm. and consumers, but with consumer neuroscience take this level of, you know, perhaps reaching uh, some processes that we didn't reach before. Uh, but I guess the tricky point here is to balance that, right? It's like, uh, because what the, the knowledge by itself is not good, it's bad, but it can be used either for good or for bad, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a very important point. And I'm also teaching uh, uh, customer neuroscience and I try to provide a critical way of considering um, uh, this. Mm. Uh, I would like to say two things about it. First, concerning um, neuroimaging uh, studies, I mean, based on functional magnetic resonance imagery, for example, in France, it's not possible to conduct this kind of study even for company without going to an ethical committee. Uh, okay. That's for me a way of fixing this kind of issue. And the other option, because it's maybe not something that is it's not the case in other countries, you have some uh, association that created a shot of good practices. Okay, and that is good. 
And I think it's a good way of maybe not forcing, but engaging the companies of, okay, this is an interesting tool. And also for the brain image, sometimes it's not good to be considered as a company using this kind of tools because you give the way the feeling that maybe you would like to manipulate your customer or force them to make some choices they don't want. But mm. if you present this kind of, uh, if you say that you're part of this kind of, uh, and you support this kind of chart and you participate and you accept to be part of it and to follow the rules, it's maybe a way of maybe conducting good uh, research in your science for marketers. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, in, a, in an ideal work, uh, I guess, different stakeholders, and again, I don't want to say that this is only companies, but also states, you know, and, and non-profit organizations, and basically anyone dealing with like, public relevant topics. Uh, in an ideal world, you will think that uh, if you also see how things negatively affect customers and you stand by them, uh, then you can design strategies that actually are going to pay off, you know, and are going to be profitable because you want to actually support your your market. You know, you want to support your customers. So in a way, uh, having like that intention is something that could be profitable while you're doing uh, good at the same time. Okay, Olivia, we uh, have, I have two, two last questions that I would like to ask you before we uh, finish today's um, uh, podcast. The first one is, you know, like I know that you have been, not only working in this uh, topic, but you have been uh, talking with the policymakers, you know, and people uh, in public uh, health. Uh, and recently you talked at the European uh, Parliament about some of these topics. What what happened there? Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, it was a, an event for consumer protection. Um, it, was, um, it was focused on uh, social media. And uh, I was talking about the effect of influencers on uh, on teenagers. Uh, okay. I, I started with the research on food porn I already mentioned to you, but uh, we also discussed more generally about the effect of influencers uh, on the brain of uh, teenagers. Uh, because you have many research showing, for example, that when you have an influencer that has a risky behavior on uh, social media, for example, smoking or, uh, or drugs or alcohol or other things. Actually, in the brain of teenagers, you see a decrease of activity in self-control areas. That means that normally the alert you have of this kind of behavior decrease because you see a, uh, an influencer having this kind of behavior. Mm. But make this um, behavior more acceptable for teenagers. And it, they compare with people, with uh, older people, it was not the case. It's very, because you are during, uh, when you are a teenager, you, I mean, you know that uh, your uh, prefrontal brain and all the brain and the brain area with social interaction are not completely developed. You are very affected by the behavior of other people, especially of influencers. And that means when you see this kind of People having a risky behavior, you look like it looks like it's not so bad, and you can change your uh, your behavior too. And uh, you have some studies showing the effect of, for example, in the case of unhealthy food, of people eating more, of teenagers doing eating more unhealthy food for this reason, just after mm. being exposed to these kind of messages. And you have also um, an effect about um, um, uh, about uh, reward and learning. You, you have some. Showing and that's the reason they removed 
the like, the number of like uh, on, uh, on Instagram, because you have many studies showing that the popularity of the influencers have a very strong effect on uh, the attitude and all the brain process information. For example, when you have an influencer that has many followers or many likes, actually you have an increase of activity in our brain areas associated with reward and, um, and also with, um, um, with um, learning processes. I mean, you are, it's like you start to consider the product they promote mm -hmm. as a reference for the product category and hmm. you make it more likely to select this one hmm. because they give you a reference and your brain starts to consider it as a reference to make, a, to make the decision. It's, um, it's about the, uh, what is called reinforcing your uh, learning. That is uh, uh, very interesting. And, and I can see that the link with, you know, how this uh, can be relevant uh, in particular in, in the increasing sort of like digital uh, context in which we live, right? As, as I was talking with some of my, my uh, uh, students in, a, in the last uh, weeks, the time that at least some uh, people in some countries spend on on online is is dramatic, right? Like you spend mm -hmm. I don't know up to eight hours in your in front of your computer and plus or minus a little bit of hours on your smartphone, uh, and some of those hours are spent on social media on different social platforms, and you're exposed to all these different things. And the new generations are basically born native uh, in these mm -hmm. contexts, and that means that they have all these cues. Uh, that are immediate and frequently mm. kind of like, um, yeah, transforming their kind of like uh, ecosystem, I guess. And for example, in terms of uh, recommendation, actually after my presentation, it was not a recommendation, but they suggested to uh, maybe to supervise or maybe more, maybe to, um, to stop uh, the access of influencers for, for teenagers. Hmm. And so this kind of things actually, but they were thinking about it after that. They were completely understanding that that changed the way we process information. And if we are not able to control it, we are not able to control our behavior behind. And uh, and especially, I mean, of course, if it's just to um, to buy, uh, I don't know, a new. Uh, a new uh, a new bag or something like that is maybe not too bad, but in the case of risky behavior and uh, when you have someone promoting something that is not good for for the teenager, maybe something we have to consider. Yeah, I agree, and perhaps for society at large, right? Yeah. And and I think the 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 key here and one of the things that I'm appreciating from what you're saying is, you know, maybe maybe the policy or the approach to public health won't change dramatically from one second to the other, mm -hmm. but at least it's our role to create these discussions in the public sphere so that people know what what we know, you know, and what what is going on in the context of customer experiences. Olivia, I have one final question for you uh, before we finish. Uh, and this is the same question that I asked you uh, last time, but now in the, the, top, the context of this topic, and is that you know that we have many um, students, uh, but also uh, people from different companies that are very interested in, in the practical applications of everything that we talked about. And I think this has been a very practical uh, discussion, but if you can broadly speaking give us your top recommendations uh, for our listeners on using consumer neuroscience, what, what would you tell them? 
Uh, I would like to tell them first to think a lot about it before to start this kind of uh, study because, as I said, it's very expensive and uh, you won't answer the same question that you can answer with other uh, data. But if they are interested about understanding um, the process behind decision, if they need to better understand their customers and maybe how different ways of processing information can affect the way they, uh, they, um, they, make, uh, they make decision or have behavior, that's the key reason of using this technology. It's, for me, it's not, they I won't say you should use it to predict the behavior of your customers. I won't say that would be the good tool for doing it. And uh, I'm not sure if we can expect from other tools to do it also, but it's more about if you would like to have a deep understanding of how your customer process information and if this information makes sense for you to change the way maybe you would like to present the product to your customers, that's a good reason to use this technology. Olivia, thank you so much for, for that answer and for the podcast today. Uh, I will post both of your articles uh, in the description of the podcast. Uh, we talked about the two articles, or you mentioned two of, of her articles. I will post them on the description for anyone who would like to read them and also her contact details as usual. Uh, so thank you very much, Olivia. It was a pleasure to talk uh, with you on this topic and to learn about the, the research that you have been doing. Thank you, Carlos. It was also a pleasure to discuss again with you. <laughs> Great. Thank you.